During Jesus' very short earthly ministry, there was a lot of gossip. There was a lot of opinions about him. He was by far one of the most popular preachers of his day. Thousands literally gathered to hear him preach. You have the, the Sermon of on the Mount or the Sermon on the Plain, and we're told many crowds gathered to hear him. You have the feeding of the, uh, the 5,000, the 4,000, and that's just in reference to the men. That doesn't include the, the women and the children. Many of those who, who came to listen to him loved what they heard, were challenged, convicted. Others who listened weren't as convinced. In fact, the word on the street was Jesus was a rogue rabbi. Some people questioned his credentials. Who was his father? Some people mocked the fact that he was from Nazareth. Can anything good come out of Nazareth? His own family, on one occasion, thought he was out of his mind. It's not an order of service sheet, but if you do have a Bible, in the verses immediately before this passage, Jesus is speaking. And he's aware of some of the the things that are being said about him. And so in verse 33, Jesus says, Therefore, the Son of Man has come eating and drinking, and you say, Look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Now just think about this. Some people in Jesus' day said he drank too much and he ate too much. And another problem the people of his day had with him, some of them, especially the Pharisees and the religious leaders, was the company he kept. He was friends with the tax collectors. That's the up and outs. Those who were filthy rich, but more often than not by corruptness. He was also friends with the down and outs, the petty crooks, criminals, pimps and prostitutes. And so, there was a lot of people who despised Jesus, loathed him, questioned him. And as I said, the Pharisees were were one such group. And so we come to our passage, and it opens with these words. One of the Pharisees asked Jesus to eat with him. So, So Jesus is invited to the home of a Pharisee for a dinner party. Now, if you know much about the Pharisees, you know that throughout the Gospels, they're always trying to trap Jesus. They're always trying to get some dirt on him in order that they can put an end to his ministry. 
So we come to this passage and we ask the question, why in the world would a Pharisee have Jesus over for dinner? If we were going to give him the benefit of the doubt, maybe it was because he just wanted to get to know Jesus and find out for himself what he was like. Or possibly this was a trap. There would be lots of wine on the table, lots of food. Let's see if Jesus will drink too much. Let's see if Jesus is going to eat too much. Let's get Jesus. And we read in verse 36. And Jesus went into the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. One thing that could be said about Jesus, not only is he friends of tax collectors and sinners, Jesus is friend with anyone and everyone who will invite him into their homes, into their lives. So Jesus goes to this dinner party. Let me give you some details about dinner parties in the first century. Some of you will, will, will know Middle Eastern culture, they thrive on hospitality round food. And in the first century, it was the custom that someone would throw a, a huge meal, a feast. But we, as we read in this passage, Jesus went into the Pharisee's home and he reclined at the table. So in the first century, it may have been the case in this case, that there was a low-lying table where the food would be put onto it and the drinks, and from that table would come out his cushions. And the main guests would recline at the table, and their, their position, their posture would be the same posture you would have if you were on a chaise long. So lying out, you would prop head up perhaps with your left hand, you would never use your left hand to eat. It was used for other things. You would eat your food with your right hand and you would always make sure your feet were as far away from the table as possible because your feet were the most unhygienic, dirty part, dirty part of your body. Remember, no socks or shoes, sandals through the dusty, dirty, disgusting roads of first century Israel. So if we're to picture this dinner party in our mind's eye, think of a low-level table, these cushions, and the main guests around it. We we don't know who the main guests were, but Jesus is for sure the special guest, and I presume there were other Pharisees there. But, But in the first century, another little detail to dinner parties was this. It was an open door policy. Anyone and everyone could come. There would be no security guards in the door, no bouncers to keep people away. In fact, in, in many a community, the highlight was when someone of standing had a special guest round for a meal. There were no televisions, the biggest form of entertainment, the way you would get your news, the way you would hear the big questions debated was often in the home of a religious leader. And so picture Jesus... The Pharisees lying round this table, food and wine on the table, and then loitering around their feet. And in the home, many people from the community, and no doubt the disciples. 
I don't know what they had for dinner that day. I don't know if it was a roast, maybe a barbecue, maybe it was, they, were, they were grilling out. But what I do know is this Pharisee wanted to roast Jesus, grill him with questions. And this wasn't going to be a dinner party that would be remembered for what they had to eat. So picture it. They're around the table. They're enjoying the meal. They're enjoying their glass of wine. There's lots of questions, lots of discussions. And then Luke says, And behold, like sit up, Look, a woman, not just any woman, a woman of the city. Now, I know in this congregation there are many women and you live in the city. And sometimes when you speak about somebody being a woman of the city today, it's a compliment. You're a go-getter. You're living the high life. This wasn't a compliment. This statement really heaps on condemnation a woman of the city in fact look goes on and gives her description who was a sinner the sort of friends Jesus had almost certainly in this case a prostitute and Luke wants us to, to, to just get that moment right behold and behold so there's Jesus and these Pharisees sitting around the table. The host Pharisee, no doubt, sees many of his friends, many of his local, uh, his neighbors, round about. And then out of the corner of his eye, he sees this woman walk in. And as he looks with a, a, a look of shock, other guests take a, a little look round and, and they clock her. If this was the 21st century and a, and a woman of the London Red Light District walked in to a dinner party. We, we, we would probably very quickly be able to know, you know, just picture it. High heels, fishnet stockings, mini, mini skirt, low cut top, makeup, red lipstick, stinking cheap perfume. If the, the smell of the food was delicious in the, the nose of the dinner guests, well now it was the smell of this prostitute. Now there's one other detail in the dinner party that I, I didn't mention. It was social etiquette that if you weren't one of the invited guests around the table, you should never intrude upon the conversation. You could be there, you could listen, you could learn, you could laugh, but you couldn't just try and shoo your way into the conversation. Notice what Luke tells us. When she learned that Jesus was reclining at the table, verse 38, she came and stood behind him at his feet. So Jesus is a special guest around the table and, the, and this prostitute comes and she stands right behind him. 
So now, if, the, if, you've been, if you're one of the main guests and you're sitting around that table, if you haven't clocked her, now you've clocked her because she's standing right behind Jesus. But she doesn't remain silent. No. She starts screaming. It says weeping. Middle Eastern, first century, even today, 21st century women in Israel, they're, when, when they weep, it's not British stiff upper lip, wipe of the eye, you know, hold it together. It's demonstrate, you demonstrate it with how you're feeling, your actions, it's let it out. This woman was having quite a sob at Jesus' feet. So if they were having a conversation or discussion, well now they couldn't speak because her crying had totally intruded in upon the conversation. So she's broken the social etiquette. She's intruded upon the conversation, but things go from bad to worse. And just imagine the embarrassment of the host Pharisee. He's thrown this party. He didn't expect a prostitute to come to the party. There were no gate crashers, but in, in, in that day, probably this was a case of gate crashing. She really shouldn't have been there. And it goes from bad to worse because her tears are like rain. They literally soak Jesus' feet. Uh, last Sunday, I believe, in London, it was a pretty wet day. Harrison was telling me that he came to church and at his feet, after sitting for a while, he, he noticed that there was literally a pill of water because his feet were so soaked. At the feet of Jesus, because of this woman's tears, there was water on the ground, water on his feet. Jesus doesn't seem to do anything. But what she does next really adds insult to injury for for everyone because she then unfurls her hair. Now you've heard that saying, let your hair down. Well, in the first century, a woman would never let her hair down in public. She would do it in the privacy of her bedroom. But to do to let your hair down in public was was sensual or, or provocative. But but wait a minute, we shouldn't be surprised. This is a prostitute after all. She unfurls her hair in the home of this Pharisee. So you can now start feel there's gonna be real tension. Things are getting hot under the collar. But if that's not bad enough, she uses her hair to touch Jesus' feet. She's like draping herself all over Jesus. And then it gets even worse. This is now eye-popping, jaw-dropping. She starts kissing his feet. And see the word for kiss there? It's used one other time in Luke's gospel. And it's when the the prodigal son comes home and his father kissed him intensely. She starts kissing Jesus' feet intensely. 
Now, I don't know if they had lipstick in those days, but his feet, if they did, would be covered. She's kissing them intensely. She, like, this... This is strange. Here's a prostitute, and she's treating Jesus like he's one of her punters. He's a client. Like, if the Pharisee had in his mind, I'm going to trap Jesus today, we're going to see that he's a drunkard, and we're going to see that he's a glutton, we're going to prove the word in the street right, well, new revelation regarding Jesus. You can imagine, we live in a day where there are constant scandals of ministers and pastors. You can imagine the, the headlines on Twitter, the headlines of the Israeli telegraph, Popular preacher Jesus parties at Pharisee's house with a prostitute. You can imagine this in, just the sensationalized headlines. Everyone would be following it, retweeting it, picking up the paper. Like we, we have pastors falling. No doubt it was no different in the first century. Rabbis falling. Scandal. And then she does one more thing that's really revealing. She takes a tool of our trade, this ointment, this perfume, and she pours it over Jesus' knee. If you know Proverbs chapter 7, the advice from Solomon to a young man, the adulterous woman lures the man into her home by perfuming her bedroom chamber. She takes a tool of her trade and she pours it all over Jesus' feet. Now her perfume is wafting round the room, filling everyone's nostrils. You could cut the atmosphere with a knife. You might be thinking, well, one day, like... It's too much. But here's the thing. Let's look at what the host Pharisee was thinking. Verse 39. Now when the Pharisee who had invited Jesus saw this, so, so when he looked on to all that was happening, he said to himself, this is what's going on in his little mind, if this man were a prophet... He would have known who and what sort of woman this is who's touching him. She, she, for she is a sinner. You can hear the disgust and the disdain. You can hear the confusion. How can Jesus, this so-called man of God who says he speaks on behalf of God, allow this prostitute to drape herself all over him? You see, the Pharisee's mind has jumped to all these sordid conclusions. He can't make sense of what's going on. And so he, the only thing is, it's true. Jesus must be a, a sham, a rogue rabbi. Let me just press pause for one moment. Do you ever jump to the wrong conclusions? Do you ever find yourself... 
It's a really common issue that can plague uh, people who often attend churches, religious people, that we can quickly sit in judgment over people and in our minds literally create the narrative. Do you ever try and take the, the speck of dust out of a brother or sister's eye? Do you ever point the finger? Do you ever throw stones? Like in your mind and heart, right? Do you ever think bad of other people, even in this church, who you know and love? Think the worst. You see, the, the seeds of Phariseeism can exist in your heart and my heart. They do. Let's press play. Let's, let's get back to the story. Here comes the first twist. We've had the dinner party, we've had the disturbing visitor, but now there's a twist. Verse 40. And Jesus answering. Now, now, wait a minute, wait a minute, stop there. The Pharisee didn't verbalize his thoughts. He said to himself. Now Jesus answers. Do you see what Luke's telling us? Jesus is indeed a prophet. He's a prophet, priest, and king. Jesus, as John 2, 24, 25 tells us, he knows what is in man. He knows the heart of you and me. And on this day, he knew exactly what was in the heart of the Pharisee. So this sets itself up for a rather unnatural conversation because Jesus is giving answer to a thought that wasn't verbalized. And notice what Jesus says. It's Simon. Now up until this point, we've not known the name of the host Pharisee. We've just known him as the Pharisee. Things go from being professional to Jesus getting personal. Simon. It's like Jesus peels off the rank and standing that comes from the title and says, okay, I want to talk to you. Man to man. And Jesus wants to get to the heart of the matter, which is a matter of Simon's heart. And again, let me say this. Jesus knows your heart and my heart. And every time he speaks to us, He wants to get personal. Simon, I have something to tell you. Now remember where Simon's mind is at. Remember where his mind's been going. He's been jumping to these sordid conclusions. So he's thinking, Jesus is now saying, I have something to tell you. Oh, confession time. Here, Jesus is going to explain why there's this prostitute standing at his feet, draping herself all over him. He's excited. He, he can't wait to hear. Here's the trap. Everybody, all the witnesses are there. He's got Jesus right where he wanted them. Simon, I have something to tell you. Simon responds instantly. Say it, teacher. Now notice what Simon does. Jesus wants this to be personal. Simon wants to keep this professional. 
teacher. You know, he says, Jesus, you're a teacher. This fall is going to be spectacular. Here we're going to hear a teacher have to come all the way down because he's about to tell us something. Never insult the Lord of glory. Jesus right here was going to teach Simon a huge lesson. A certain man, or certain money lender, had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other owed 50. So one's got a huge debt, the other's got a smaller debt, significant debts. When they could not pay, so so neither have the ability to pay, the money lender cancelled, note that word, keyword, cancelled, the debt of both. Jesus' punchline. Now which of them will love him more. Now, you, if you're a kid here, you hear this story, it's simple, it's so straightforward, the answer is crystal clear, one's got a big debt, one's got a small debt, both get cancelled, which one's going to love him more? It is like, so easy. It's a great Sunday school story, right? I want to answer this question. But notice Simon's response. Simon answered, the one I uh, suppose for, for, for whom he cancelled the larger debt. Do, do you hear the, the hesitation? He's, he's struggling to give an, a very crystal clear answer. And he's saying, I suppose... See, for Simon, he doesn't understand what in the world this story's got to do with a woman who's standing at Jesus' feet. Question, do you understand this story? Has the penny dropped for you? This story points to the greater story of Luke's gospel. Jesus came to cancel Forgive. The word cancel there in that culture is used as a business term, cancel debts. But it's the exact same term that Paul uses in his writings, especially in Romans, which means graciously forgive. This story in Simon's mind is silly, it's stupid, it's irrelevant. Little does he know it's got everything to do with the woman standing at Jesus' feet. Simon's problem is he's a stranger to grace and forgiveness. People who have received forgiveness have a whole new way of thinking, a whole new way of living. Simon is thinking as a sinful man. Human terms, what's going on before him, it must be some sordid scandal. Now, all of you here, I know, are are diligent, faithful Bible readers, no doubt, and you know all is not as it seems. Luke has deliberately told the story this way 
He's kept us in the dark. He wants us to go back and feel, relive all that happened that day. But now comes the second twist. Now, just just so you know this, Jesus responds to, to Simon's answer and he says, you judged correctly. Simon, you got the answer right. But what Jesus is going to say next is, Simon, your judgment on this situation and on the heart issue is wrong. Your judgment is flawed. Okay, you, you answered the question right, but let's, let's, let's now look at what's going on. Here's the second twist. Verse 44, then turning towards the woman. So there is a literal twist. Jesus is lying there, reclining at table, and he turns toward the woman. And he asks Simon this question, Simon, do you see this woman? Now remember how she was initially identified? Behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner came. Notice that when Jesus speaks of her, he doesn't say, do you see this sinful woman? Do you see this prostitute? To everybody, she was identified by her sin. But to Jesus, she's this woman. One other place where Jesus calls someone woman. Remember it? John 19, verse 26. Woman. Jesus' mum. He's on the cross. Woman, behold your son. You read the commentators on that. They'll tell you, rightly, it was used as a term of affection and endearment. But no, no, no. There's more to it than that. Behind Luke's gospel is the apostle Paul. And, and we know Paul in theology, but we know something so fundamental to the Bible narrative from the beginning. We were made in the image of God, male and female. We were crowned with glory, honor and dignity. Jesus speaks to this woman as who she was made to be. Simon, do you see this woman? Simon probably couldn't lift up his eyes from the table with such shame. In fact, the Pharisees' culture was they never wanted to be accused of uh, succumbing to the, or, or the accusation of, of lust. So, so avoidance to a woman and no doubt a prostitute. Jesus says, Simon, I want you to eyeball this woman. Do you see this woman? And now Jesus fills us, brings us into the light where we've been kept in the dark. He says, I entered into your house. You gave me no water for my feet. Social etiquette, common courtesy. Someone comes to your house for a meal in the first century, the most unhygienic part of their body because they've just been walking through the dusty, dirty roads of the first century is you would wash their feet, especially when they're going to sit down at a meal. Jesus enters Simon's house and gets no such treatment. So as he's reclining at table, his feet are disgusting. But notice what Jesus says as he's looking at the woman. But she has wet my feet with her tears. Martin Luther, the great reformer, says she used her heart water. Water. 
And she wiped them with her hair. When she unfurled her hair, it was a means of necessity. She had no towel. There was no basin of water. There was now a puddle of water at Jesus' feet. And she used her hair because it was the only thing she had to dry them. Simon gave her, Simon gave Jesus not even a towel. It was common courtesy when you arrived at someone's home for a meal that you would be greeted with a holy kiss, kiss on the cheek. Jesus says to Simon, you greeted me. You gave me no kiss. But from the time I've come in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You know the verse in Isaiah, it's in Romans 10. How beautiful are the feet of those who preach good news. I'm going to posit something here right now that, that, that I think makes sense to this story. And without it, and I'll give further evidence to, to this claim, this woman had a previous encounter to Jesus where he forgave her sins. She met him, most likely, at another dinner party, and she was forgiven there. I'll explain that, but just hear that. She kissed his feet. In those days, you know, burning hot sun, traveling on the dusty roads, you would sweat, sweat of the brow. So when you arrived at someone's home, they'd give you a little bit of oil and they would just anoint your head with some oil and, you know, help with the sweat. Freshen you up. He got no such treatment in Jesus. But she anointed my feet with ointment. All of Simon's actions reveal that he not only shamed, humiliated Jesus, he rejected Jesus. From the moment Jesus arrived at his door, he had no time for him. All of this woman's actions stem from a pure, holy love for the one who is our friend because he's the friend of sinners and who forgives people their sin. So here's Jesus' punchline. Therefore I tell you, her sins... Now. Simon knows who a prostitute is. She's a woman of the city. Her sins, Jesus says it, which are many have or are forgiven. Just, just so I can point this out. If you've got an NIV in front of you or you use an NIV at home or if you use the New American Standard Bible, it will say, her sins, which are many, have been forgiven. ESV in this case says are forgiven. It's a present tense. Literally means past tense as well. It's a past act. Her sins have been forgiven. Another fact that there was a previous encounter She's been forgiven on a previous occasion. Therefore, I tell you, our many sins, which are many, have been forgiven, for she loved much. Now, the reason I stress this is because some people could easily read this verse and make this confusion. Her actions, her good works, led to her salvation. I believe you're studying Galatians right now. You're studying the heart of the gospel. It's justification by faith alone. We're not saved by our good works. We're saved by Christ's good works. 
So, so, so don't misunderstand this passage. She was not saved because of what she did to Jesus in that home that day. She was saved because of his good works, his obedience, his suffering. Her love expressed in action were in response to the forgiveness, to the grace that she had received. I am so convinced of that because of the simple story Jesus told. Who, having their debts cancelled, will love more? The one who's been forgiven, cancelled, much. And just to make it absolutely, abundantly clear, verse 50, Jesus says to her at the end of the story, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. This is salvation by faith alone in Christ alone. He doesn't say your work saved you. So Jesus doesn't identify this woman by her sin. This woman's now identified by him. The wonder of the gospel is this woman who was a sinner. She no doubt was responsible for the breakdown of many a marriage in that community, or wider community. She'd lived a colorful life, no doubt. But she has been forgiven. She's experienced the wonder-working grace of the gospel, the love of Christ for her. Her sins have been cancelled, graciously forgiven. Compare her and and the Pharisee. Her sins, no doubt, brought her to Christ. Simon's many sins in this passage keep him from Christ. He sits in judgment. He gives Jesus no uh, care. He just rejects him by all of his behavior. Her actions all show she loves him in response to what he's done for her. Some preachers will say, you know, which one are you? Who do you see yourself more in, the Pharisee or the prostitute? And I think in a church, sometimes we could say, I identify more with the Pharisee because I know actually more my heart sometimes just to, to sit in judgment, to take the speck of dust out of someone else's eye whilst I've got a log in my own eye. Jesus wants to get personal with us this morning. So, 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 so as Jesus said to Simon with his own name, as he peeled off the rank and standing, he speaks to you and I today. And let's get to the heart of the matter, which is a matter of your heart. What is your heart? In the case of Simon, it was to reject Jesus, to show nothing to Jesus, which is, at its very heart, sin. In this woman's case, who'd received forgiveness, it was to show Jesus love. What I love about this woman's story is she never speaks. Actions speak louder than words. It's a silent testimony. Well, it can't be silent because she was weeping, but you get what I mean? It was a testimony where she never said a word, but by all of her actions, she showed her love. She was not ashamed of the gospel. She was not ashamed to kiss the feet of the one who brought her good news. She was not ashamed to pour in his feet her, her ointment for the one she loved. For the one who died for her, who would die for her, for the one who was living for her, for the one who would be raised for her. So to get really clear, this passage isn't about this woman, this passage is about Jesus. Jesus does this when you receive salvation. 
Your former identity in Adam and sin removed. Your new identity in Jesus. Man, woman, made in it the image of God, being remade, renewed in Christ. Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. In salvation, you receive the peace of God. That's his shalom. That's his highest and richest. Not by anything you do, but by faith alone. So if you're here today and you're not a Christian, today, put your faith in Jesus Christ and you shall be saved. Believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ and discover a love that you've never known. A love that you you and I don't deserve. Holy, pure love of the Son of God. You know, by the end of this passage, there's a discussion taking place at the table. There's new gossip. Here's the question. Who is this who even forgives sins? Ask a Jew who forgives sins. Answer, God alone. Who is this who said to this woman, your sins are forgiven? This is the God-man. This is the Son of God. This is the long-awaited, long-anticipated Messiah. This is the Lord Jesus Christ. This is the one who is worthy of love, mind, heart, body, and soul. This is the one who's to be greatly praised. Let me finish with this story. When I was 18 year old, I, I'd just become a Christian and I, I, and I got the opportunity to, to do ministry in the city of Glasgow late at night. There was a bus. The ministry was called Teen Challenge. And they went into the, the city and they gave out tea, coffee, blankets, soup to the homeless. And to the red light district. To the prostitutes. I'll never forget it. I still remember when some women came on the bus. And they struggled to even look any of the men who were on the bus in the eye. Just this cold distrust. No doubt because they'd been used and abused. There was a woman on the bus, beautiful woman, who served just out of the love of Christ. Great joy. I later learned that this woman who, who served with so much joy and was speaking to the woman, and the, the, when the woman came on the bus and spoke to her, there was just this great report. I later learned, and I'd have never known it, she herself had been a woman of the sea. But such was the transformation when I was working shoulder to shoulder to her. I just saw a woman who loved the Lord Jesus Christ. Who had, who knew the highest and richest blessing of the grace of the gospel given to her in Christ. So once again, I, I, if you don't know Christ, come to know and experience his wonder working grace and love. And if you are a Christian and you recognize the seeds of Phariseeism in your heart, then we need to mortify them and put them to death. 
And then we need to live unto righteousness. And our actions will speak louder than words. And we don't love because we first loved him. We love because he first loved us. And we love not to earn his favor, but because we have his favor. And in response to his grace, we want to show forth to him that we love him. Love so amazing, love so divine, demands my life, my soul, my all. Let's pray. Our God, as we come before you, having meditated upon this moment from the ministry of your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, our jaws and our eyes have popped and been wide open, shocked and, and stunned at the scandal of what Simon thought. And yet in in seeing what he thought, we've been challenged to think about our own thoughts. We prayed that you would test our thoughts and our attitudes in the radiance of your purity. And God, we, we, we acknowledge that our hearts are wicked. We ourselves cannot even understand them. And so we, we, we pray for, for cleansing, for forgiveness. As we prayed in Psalm 51, create in us a, a clean heart. We, we, we've, we've witnessed this, this woman and we've been humbled at her love in response to what she received. And we look at how we often respond to that which we have received in salvation and we we see just how lukewarm our love is. We say we're not ashamed of the gospel. We believe it to be the power of God unto salvation for all who believe. And yet we know that so often Our actions do speak louder than words. And little do our actions show the love that you deserve. And so, Lord, we we thank you, though, that, that we come before the one who is full of mercy. This woman who was in that home that day, she saw the Savior She knew her sins were many, but she knew his mercy was more. And so we come and we confess our sins and we pray that by your spirit and by your grace, we would be enabled to live unto righteousness, to live in a way that is worthy of the gospel to which we believe. On this, the first day of the week, we pray that by your spirit, the spirit of the risen Lord Jesus, we would be enabled to live this week in step with your spirit.
seeking to honor you and glorify you in all of our relationships, in our thinking, in our acting, with our lives and with our lips. Even as we give today our offerings, we give these in response to the thankfulness and the, and the gratitude we have for all that we receive from you. Yes, in salvation, but even each and every day, your new mercy, our daily bread. Every day we experience the goodness of God, the common grace to, to live here with the freedom to worship, the common grace to live in a, in a city like London that's got so much that it boasts. You are good to all that you've made, but oh God, how good you are to sinners saved by grace. We pray, oh God, that you would help us. Help us now in response to having heard your word and and, and seeking to be those who put your word into practice. We pray that you would bring fruit from our lives. Grant us opportunities in our conversations so that the word in the street in London and in Cumbernauld might be Jesus is the one who forgives sinners. And those who have got divided opinion about him would come to see the only thing that matters. What your word reveals. He is the Son of God, the Lord of glory, the friend of sinners. So help us to be those who, if you like, gossip the gospel so that others would come to know you and love you. Lord, thank you for this congregation. Thank you for the hospitality they show to, to one another, to the visitors, to all who come in their midst. Thank you, Lord, for the ministry of this church here in the heart of London. We pray that you would continue to bless and pour forth your spirit for the building up of the saints, for the salvation of sinners. We pray, O God, that you would bless the leadership, Harrison, as he preaches your word, Harrison and his his pastoral ministry. We, 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 We thank you for the elders, Lord, for their love for the congregation, for the prayers, for the shepherd heart. Thank you for the deacons who often do work so quietly and unseen, but do it for your glory and for the sake of the care of the congregation. Thank you for every member. Thank you for everyone connected. And thank you the ministry of this church even ripples through the nations with its diversity. Thank you for the taste of heaven that it is. And Lord, may we be encouraged and enthused as we experience it together this day. Keep us and bless us in Christ. In his precious and powerful name we pray. Amen.